Amen. This morning, we begin a new teaching series called Redemption. We're covering the book of Exodus for the next couple of months. And as we work through Exodus and as we consider redemption, my goal is we would observe what the Bible has to say, that we would interpret its meaning correctly, and that we would then apply God's Word to our lives, that we would be conformed to the image of the Son, that we would leave this place and not simply have heard something that was on some level inspiring or maybe educational or informative, but that we would leave this place more propelled and conformed to the image of Christ, that we would worship Him more authentically. One thing that I will say as we begin this new series, kind of a disclaimer, is if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you know it's quite lengthy, and these stories, these narratives are rich. And if we were going to go through Exodus, and if I would mention every single point or thought or explore everything, we'd be in the book for a few years, but honestly. But we're not going to do that. We'll be in it only for a few months. But in order for you to get the most out of Exodus, the most out of this, this series on redemption, it's important that you join the home group because you'll be examining and pondering and applying principles and truths that we honestly don't have time to cover on a Friday morning. And so to have the most rich experience, all of our groups are going to be studying Exodus, going through questions and exploring how to apply even things that I don't even mention on a Friday morning just because of the reality of the context. So I encourage you to join a group. Let's begin Exodus by reading it, because anything that I say is only commentary, explanation, or an illustration of God's Word. So we are here to feast on God's Word, and so let's read it. We'll be reading Exodus 1 and 2. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers in all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. 
But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood by a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. All her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman. And she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse a child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid. And thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs of feet to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to the father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him. They may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, 
and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God has a plan. God's plan is to display his glory to the created order. And God is accomplishing his plan by creating a people that will belong to him and that will then enjoy him forever. That is God's glorious plan. In a word, God's plan is to be worshipped, to be valued above all else, and to be esteemed, to be glorified, to be worshipped, because he alone is worthy and he desires to be recognized for the infinitely beautiful and wise and magnificent and glorious God that he is. And when God's people enjoy him and then live lives that reflect his character, live lives of worship, you are fulfilling your purpose as a human. That is what humans were made to be, created to do. You and I exist to enjoy God. You exist, as, as the old catechism says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is what God is doing. And so if you look here in the Bible, the book before Exodus, book of Genesis, that's the reason why you see in Genesis chapter 12 and in 15 and also in chapter 17, you see our God calling a man named Abraham to be the father of his people, that he will then create a people through Abraham that will belong to God and they will enjoy him, worship him forever. God is accomplishing his plan through Abraham. And so Abraham's descendants who received the promises, the covenants of God, were designed to be his very own people who would belong to God and they would again enjoy him. So you're wondering, well then, how is it that the descendants of Abraham now are living 400 years later as slaves languishing in Egypt? How did that happen? Well, you have to know the backstory. Genesis 37 through 50 describe how that happened. You see, Abraham, who first was called to be the father of God's people to live for his glory, Abraham had a son, Isaac, who had a son named Jacob. And so Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had 12 sons. One of those sons is named Joseph. And he was sold into slavery by his older brothers. And he's taken to the land of Egypt. And through circumstances that only God could orchestrate, this slave who was in prison becomes a prime minister of the power, the superpower of the world at the time, Egypt. He is second in command, second only to the king himself, Pharaoh. 
And through Joseph's wisdom revealed to him by God, Joseph then saves Egypt from a drought that was going to destroy the entire entire region, rather, including Canaan, where his family was still living. And there were 70 of them that then came to live in Egypt under the care of Joseph. And so God preserved his people and he preserved his promise by sending Joseph ahead to, yes, suffer, be in prison, but then become the prime minister, save Egypt, have abundance of food, and then to bring the clan that God had made the promises to. God promised to Abraham that he would bless all the peoples of the world through one of his descendants. And so we know that that is Jesus. But in order for God to bring us Christ through that lineage of Abraham, he had to preserve this clan, and he did so, but having them, all seven of them, move to Egypt and survive the drought under the care of Prime Minister Joseph. And so you read chapter 1 and 2, and you see that God has been preserving his people and his promise, but you also see great suffering here. We see them in slavery. They need a Savior, and they are in dire need of God. And so the theme of the book that we'll be looking at for the next several weeks, the theme of Exodus, so the book theme that ties it all together, so God has a plan to save a people for his own glory. That's what Exodus is about, that God has a plan to save a people for his own glory. The word Exodus, which is the title of the book, the word Exodus means a going out, or the word means a departure. So God's people needed a departure, a going out from slavery. They needed to be liberated. So there's one word that summarizes this reality, that summarizes God's plan to save a people for his own glory, a word that summarizes the book of Exodus. That word is redemption. And so the word redemption is that word. Now here's the problem with words like redemption. We hear them in church. If you've been in church like I have for a long time, you've heard the word redemption, redeem, or redeemer so many times that it almost becomes hollow, and it almost has no meaning to it. And you forgot what it means, and you just kind of use the word, but it doesn't really impact you, and it doesn't have any transformative power in your life. And so you just go through the motions. You just kind of go to church. You may have your quiet time. You just kind of like a zombie just going through the Christian life, and you don't stop to think, but what does this actually mean? And we try to fake it. But then, real evil and real pain and real disappointment can come upon us. And then we're running around frantic, searching for answers. And what's so crazy is the answers have been in front of you the whole time with words like redemption and how significant they are. But the thing is, if you don't have the context of what the word means, it doesn't jump off the page. It's just a word in black and white that doesn't impact you. And what you need is the context of the word so that it can go deep and take root and that we can actually live it and apply it. Context is so critical to understanding. It's kind of like watching Lord of the Rings. Any of you like that movie, Lord of the Rings? No, only me? Oh, very few of you. You're missing out. Awesome movies. 
Now, I love the books, but I prefer the movies because I like to, three hours is long. To watch three is nine hours of film. But let's suppose that you have never heard of Lord of the Rings, never heard of J.R.R. Tolkien, never read the book, never heard of the movie, never watched even a trailer of the movie, okay? And then you walk into your friend's living room, and he's watching something on the screen, and you're like, what is this? Oh, it's Lord of the Rings, and you just watch the end of the third movie, and you see two little guys called hobbits, and they're, they're clawing up this volcano. And you're like, what's that all about? And then your friend says, oh, this is the best part. This is a climax. This is where Frodo is about to save the world. And you're like, he's holding a ring. How, how does holding a ring in a volcano have any impact on saving the fate of the world. You're like, that's nonsense. But your friend's on the edge of his seat. He's just so enthralled in watching the end of the third movie. What's the difference? You don't have any context. You haven't watched the nine hours of film before that is climaxing with Frodo casting the ring of power into the fires of Mordor. You don't know. Because you haven't watched the previous three movies. It means nothing to you, and you're just confused. It's all in the backstory. The significance is all in the story. When you understand the story, it makes sense. The backstory to, to the word redemption is the book of Exodus. Exodus is the backstory. Exodus is the narrative. Exodus is the story by which God chose in his infinite wisdom to reveal to us what redemption is and what Christ did on the cross. He chose to reveal it through a story, and he's doing it in the book of Exodus. And so we have to be engaged and understand what God is saying through this book so that it grips our hearts and we understand God's redemptive plan. This is critical to understand. The word redemption, what it means, the definition of the word, it means being liberated or being freed or being rescued from bondage or slavery to a person or a thing. So the word itself means to be liberated from slavery. So that's what the word means. And so understanding it in the context of this incredible incredible story of Exodus will help you apply and experience transformation through it. You see, God is telling a story. It's the story of redemption. And there is one main character in the entire Bible, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And we're going to see how Exodus points to him and his glory on the cross and the redemption that he bought for us and liberating us from our slavery to Satan and to sin. And so all of redemptive history, all of the Bible points to Jesus. That's what we're about to encounter for the next several weeks. So let's look at the main idea out of Exodus 1 and 2 that we just read. The main idea is that God has a plan to display his glory. It's quite simple. And that's my idea, really, for the whole Bible. But it really is clearly here in Exodus 1 and 2 that God's plan is to display his glory. 
And there's three truths that we're going to look at right here in Exodus 1 and 2. So God has a plan of accomplishing redemption through, number one, a particular people. And so three truths. God is accomplishing his plan of redemption to show his glory, number one, through a particular people. Exodus opens up with the first seven verses, Exodus 1, 1 through 7. And it's describing a specific, unique, particular people. The descendants of Abraham are the ones that are being described in the first paragraph. And so God's redemptive plan is accomplished through a particular people, his people, God's people. So again, God's plan has been to create a people that will belong to him. So he created his people, and then he's going to now rescue his people from slavery so that we can then be free to know him, to enjoy him forever. You see, when God called Abraham to the father of his people, which they would become a nation of Israel while in slavery, they would multiply as we read. They would, they would go from 70 people, a small clan, into a great nation while they were for 400 years in slavery, in, well, towards the end in slavery in Egypt. They were called to reveal God's holy character. So God called them to reveal who he is to the Egyptians, but then to the world all around them. And so Israel has always been called to be a light to the nations. It was never about just the sons of Abraham, it was the sons of Abraham revealing who God is to have people from every tribe and nation and tongue to worship the one true God. But the means for accomplishing that was the lineage of Abraham. Jesus came through the lineage of Abraham to reach Americans who are in dire need of him. It's not a Christian nation, let me tell you to reach South Africans, to reach Filipinos, to reach Africans, to reach people in the Far East, to reach Arabs, to reach people in Europe that are also in dire need. Jesus came through the lineage of Abraham to rescue a particular people who would then display his glory, and other people of every tribe and nation and tongue would then come to confess Christ as the king. And what you see in this room is a visualization. You see it on display right here in this room. The promise to Abraham that one of his descendants would accomplish the plan and all the families, all the peoples of the world would belong to God. That's what we're about here at this church because it's the gospel. And so we are called to then be a light to the nations as Israel was called to be. If you read in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, it says that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So those of us that are following Jesus are God's particular people. We have been rescued from slavery. The promises of Abraham belong to those that are in Christ. And God is telling this beautiful story of redemption, and he is using his people to tell it through the lives of his people, rescuing men and women from slavery to sin. He is rescuing us so that we can then proclaim that freedom to others. And so your life plays a particular role in God's plan for the world. Your life is not small. 
your lack is not insignificant. A lot of young mothers in this room, how many diapers do you change per day? I don't know, what, a dozen? I don't know, maybe 20? I don't know, but a lot of diapers. How many dishes do you wash or how many sheets do you have to change? I don't know, more probably than I would want to do. And yet that is your calling as a mother. And there are days that I'm sure that you wonder, what is the point? What, this is insignificant. My life is small. It just doesn't make a difference. I'm a lowly mother, or I'm just a guy with a J-O-B, my job. and well, I'm not significant. Who am I among 7 billion people on the planet? You belong to God. Your life matters. If you're part of his people, then he wants to use you and your life to tell his story of redemption so that others as well can experience it, and his glory is manifested further. Your life matters. It has purpose, as small as we might think it is. Do people know that you belong to Jesus? They should. Have you been gripped by this? We ought to be. And so number one, talking about God accomplishing plan of redemption, is through a particular people, the descendants of Abraham, by faith, now those of us that belong to Christ. Number two, God's plan is accomplished through painful circumstances. So through a particular people, and he accomplishes it also through painful circumstances. We just read in Exodus 1, verses 8 through 22, that there were suffering through horrible circumstances. The text tells us that a new king, Pharaoh of Egypt, did not know Joseph. He didn't know that a man named Joseph, who was a descendant of Abraham, one of the Hebrews, how he had saved Egypt. He didn't know nor did he care. They, the Israelites had grown to being a powerful nation, and now what you see is the Pharaoh is afraid of them. We just read it. says the people of Israel says, are too many and too mighty for us. And so in an effort to control the Israelites, what does the king of Egypt do? It says that he afflicted them with heavy burdens of slavery. And we just read specifically verses 12 through 14. It says that there were ruthless taskmasters, hard service, working in the field, working them as slaves to try to control them, to beat them, and to break their spirit. It didn't work. They kept multiplying. There wasn't any TV or Twitter or Facebook or Pinterest. And they were working hard, went home, and, and they were multiplying. And so... The Egyptian king was not pleased, so he got more aggressive. And you know what he turns to? We just read, he turns to genocide. He turns to slaughtering and massacring little baby boys, killing them. And he caused his midwives to kill them. But they know the one true God, and so they don't do it. And so now what happens? The king gets more angry, he gets more aggressive, and he tells All his people, he commands his troops, even the military, go into the homes, take every baby boy, and throw him into the Nile. The place that was a source of life for the Egyptians. Egypt, if you look at it, the only reason why it would even exist, people lived there because of the Nile. Allow them to plant crops, and to have fresh water, and to have fish. Their survival was based upon the Nile, so life flowed from the Nile, and now the king wants that Nile to flow with blood. 
and he does. Can you just stop for a second and just try to imagine what it would be like to be a pregnant mother in those days, praying, praying it's a girl, and then he's born, it's not a girl, and you hear that knock on your door, and you know it's the Egyptian soldiers, and they're ripping that little boy out of your hands to then watch them throw him into the Nile? Can you imagine the cries of desperate mothers? Can you imagine the, the, the father in the corner who is dejected and quiet and afflicted and is suffering and he can't console his wife because their baby boy was just thrown into the Nile River? Can you just, on any level, begin to imagine the pain and the cries and the suffering that was going on in those days among the Israelites? And can't you hear them crying out, God, where are you? What are you doing up there in heaven? Why haven't you shown up? Why is this happening to me? Have you ever... Since that in your life, have you ever been through such pain and evil and disappointment where you find yourself crying out, saying, God, what are you doing and where are you? How could you allow this? How is this even possible? Have you ever been in those shoes Well, the Israelites were? Asking, where is God? The truth is that we live in a world that is corrupted, that pain exists, death exists, Real evil exists in this world. They're a reality. But that's the point of the gospel. That's why God the Father sent His Son to redeem, to rescue, to restore this broken world. And we are as broken on the inside as this world is broken. That's why Jesus came and suffered and died on the cross for you and for me and paid the penalty and is pushing back the kingdom of darkness that belongs to Satan, and the day will come when he's going to vanquish and crush the head of the serpent. That is coming. We can have hope that we have a God that when we suffer, he hears us. He knows. But we must submit to him and trust him. We have to. There's nowhere else to turn but to trust that he knows what he is doing is good. And he wants to tell the story using your life with your pain and loss and disappointment. He wants to use your life to display his glory, a healing of mercy and grace. He wants to show what healing is through your life so others can then come and worship him as well. He wants to use you. There is purpose in your pain, but we have to submit to him. I want you to picture five friends. Picture young, maybe university students, okay? Picture these five friends that love theater. They love drama. They love performing and writing plays. And they say, you know what? We want to make it big. We want to have plays in the grand theater with many people watching us perform our plays someday. And so they start writing their plays and performing them in their garage. It's big time, you know, in the garage. 
and they invite their friends and their neighbors to come watch and perform this little small-time production in their garage. But they're excited because they get to write the script and perform their plays. Now, one of these five friends, who's also a drama student at the university, gets invited to join a Broadway play in New York City. Now, this is the pinnacle of theater, Broadway, New York. And so he's telling his friends, hey, no offense about our operation here, but I'm thinking about going to Broadway. They say, no, what are you doing? You shouldn't go to Broadway. If you go to New York, you're not going to be the star. You're not going to be able to write your own play, and you're not going to be performing the lead. You're going to be in the background, and you're going to have just one little part, maybe not even a speaking part at first. Why would you want to go to Broadway and have an insignificant little role in the background when you can stay here and be the star of our production and write your own play and write your own story and then live it out? You should not go to Broadway. But this young man has enough wisdom to say, you guys are crazy. And he goes to Broadway. And he's part of something bigger than himself. He's a part of something that has real actors and real lights and a real theater and real audience, and he gets to learn about theater for real because he's a part of something much bigger than himself. Is it possible that we have been inviting God to enter into our little small-time story that we call My Life, We're saying, God, we want you to come and be a part of my life and the story that I'm writing. So God is a guest appearance in your play, your life story. Instead of accepting whatever role God has for you in the epic drama that he is telling. It is better to have no speaking parts insignificant in the background, in the drama that God is telling, and the part that he assigns to you is better than you attempting to write your own story, live out your life by your thoughts the way you would make it, and then think that God is going to succumb and come into your garage and perform in your story. He's not. You're not the main character in this thing called redemption. You don't write the story. God does. It's his story. And you and I have the privilege of playing a part in his story. We have to submit to him and not try to define what our lives would look like. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying this is something that you do casually or lightly. But if you've experienced true pain, what I can tell you is that God plans to use your pain. He he wants to heal you and restore you and then tell his story of redemption through the details of your life if you will submit to him and allow him to do so. Thirdly, God's plan of redemption is accomplished through a promised redeemer, through a particular people, through painful circumstances, and accomplished it through a promised redeemer. We don't have a lot of time. We just read the text. We're just reviewing it very briefly. Chapter 2 of Exodus You have this woman who has a baby boy. She hides him for three months. When she can't hide him anymore, she puts him in a basket. 
And so what does God do? He preserves the life of his Redeemer, of his Savior. God saves Moses because he had a bigger plan that would bring us Jesus through his lineage, through the lineage of Abraham. So that meant preserving the nation of Israel. So he preserves his promise and his people by preserving the baby boy named Moses, who a pagan woman who doesn't know God, doesn't please God, an Egyptian finds him. God uses her tender, motherly heart to raise Moses. But let's not miss something very important here. This is pointing to Jesus, who will one day be the ultimate redeemer. Moses is the redeemer with a little lowercase, a little small r. Jesus is the capital R, redeemer. But Moses is pointing to, foreshadowing, alluding to Jesus, the final redeemer. But Moses, because he wasn't Jesus, he was a human, not God-man like Jesus is. He was deeply flawed. We'll see that more next week in chapter 3. But Moses was so flawed, terribly flawed. See, he knew he was an Israelite. He knew God had set him apart to rescue his people. But Moses tried to do it on his terms, in his wisdom, in his power, his way. By what? Killing an Egyptian who was abusing a fellow Israelite. And so Moses was trying to deliver Israel on his terms. He failed, and he was exiled to Midian, 300 kilometers away, because of his, his murdering this Egyptian. But just stop and think about Moses. Try to picture yourself in his shoes. He's an Israelite by birth, but adopted into royalty, raised in the palace. His mother is a princess, educated in the, the palace, speaks different languages, immersed in the Egyptian culture, likely loved the Egyptian culture. It's all he knew. He likely felt partial to the Egyptians in many ways, thoroughly immersed in their culture, taught about their gods, and yet he knew that he was not an Egyptian, and yet he probably felt like one on most days. So then what happens to him? He has to leave and go live in a new place in Midian with all new people, nowhere near his family. He doesn't even know who he belongs to, because the Israelites don't trust him. They mock him. So his people don't trust him. The Egyptians, who kind of were his people, want to kill him. Can you say identity crisis? Can you say confusion? He goes to the Midianites, and they think he's an Egyptian. He sounds like one. Probably was dressed like one. They think, oh, an Egyptian. And he never corrects them. No, as a matter of fact, I was raised as one, but I'm really, my, my passport is a... You know, how we do here, right? So where are you from? Like, oh, that's kind of confusing for some of you. I'm from all over the place. But my passport is from this country. No, he doesn't do it. He says, yeah, I'm Egyptian. That's fine. Come in. He doesn't even debate that until later in chapter 4 that comes out. The point is this, that this man who is probably confused, they don't know what God had in store for him. How is God's plan going to be manifested through him, this man, was so confused and has such crisis about his identity that he calls his son not from here. Imagine. Mr. Identity Crisis calling his little boy not from here. Passing it on to his son. This further confusion. There was no way that Moses on his own could deliver Israel. No way. 
to fly. It would take the work of God. Because only the work of God can redeem a human being. Only God does that. And he does it when people repent and believe in Jesus and they are spiritually redeemed, set free from their slavery to know and to enjoy God forever. But Moses was pointing to what Jesus would do. The last couple of verses I want to read to you and then we're, we're, we're finishing up is verse 23, it describes that Israel groaned out of their slavery for help. I love verse 24. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenants with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God knew. He remembered. He was about to act on his promise to Abraham and to his descendants God hears, he knows, he cares, and he has a plan for you if you will trust him and follow him. You have Jesus. That is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. So as we close, I ask you last question. What about you? Where are you at in following Jesus? Do you follow him? Have you been redeemed? Have you been set free? From your slavery? Is Jesus your master who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins? Or are you trying to figure it out on your own and you have a spiritual identity crisis that can be cleared up? You can belong to Jesus. If you'll turn to him today, ask him to forgive you, to save you, he will. This morning, we're going to partake of communion. I'm going to actually call now our, our band, worship team, and our two men that are going to partake of passing out the elements that come to the front. And as you know, I'm going to pray and ask God to prepare our hearts to image the gospel itself as we partake of communion. So will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for giving us this time this morning. We know that we are unworthy. We don't deserve you or your forgiveness. We thank you for redeeming us, for making us your people despite our pain we have your son Christ, our redeemer. We thank you that you're at work and you have a plan. Even if we can't see it, even if we don't understand it, we trust that you're working all things for good so that your glory is displayed in our lives. We thank you that we can now partake of your table. We thank you, Father. We just pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Just a point of clarification as we enter into time of, of the ordinance of communion is this is not about your salvation. Some different traditions and backgrounds describe this as a, quote, means of grace, where this is actually, we take the Lord's table and it's part of your salvation. The Bible does not reveal that. This is a symbol. It's a picture of the gospel. And so the bread symbolizes the body of Christ, where he died on the cross in your place. And, and the cup represents his blood that was shed for you to pay the price for our freedom, our redemption. And so this does not save you. You partake of it and you show that you have been saved. It's a celebration, though. We don't approach it with mournful or sad hearts. Jesus is not on the cross. He's resurrected. He's alive and well. He's our king. He's ruling and he leads us. And so we celebrate him and his salvation that he's given to us with the table. And so I'm going to ask Angus, please, to first offer a prayer to bless the elements of, of the bread, and then we'll just 